Well, good morning, everyone. It's only polite to reply, isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> good to be here with you all again. And uh, this, this is kind of different, isn't it? I'm not going to do tap dancing here on this. I've got special permission to stand on the, uh, the wooden, wooden floor, but um, there'll be no tap dancing. Um, I was thinking, it, it, with the building like this, you know, some of us have a, a long enough association with the building and memory that we can remember, can't we, the days before it looked anything like this at all. Who remembers the old wooden seats and the, and the hard, legless rows uh, and the holes in the ceiling and the pigeons flying around? Honestly, 1990, that was what it was like. We had to pack out, the acoustics were so bad, we had to bring extra spare coats with us to put on the empty seats to soak up the echo. So this is nothing. This is nothing. Lightweights we are. Actually, back in 1995-ish, my dates may be a little hazy, we had the BBC here recording songs of praise. Anyone remember that? The original one, not 2015, but 1995. Um, and, um, uh, and we, Maggie and I, with our girls, were sitting right about there on, on the... On, uh, and it wasn't a live performance, you know, it was a recording. So you had take after take of certain songs, and, and it all looked smooth and, and seamless in the end, but, you know, it took hours to do. Um, and uh, we were sitting there, uh, and... Um, and this is before anything can be done to re reshape and refurbish this hall. Um, and as I sat there, a piece of plaster fell down from the ceiling onto my lap. Now, it wasn't a big piece of plaster, it was a flake more than a... And I just said to Maggie, oh, look, look what's come off the ceiling. And immediately, two BBC technicians were at my elbow. What, what, what's gone wrong? What is it? I thought, I mean, they must, I don't know, I'm imagining this, but I, I guess they were audio engineers with super sensitive microphones. They picked up what I said. It's like Big Brother was watching you and checking. So, as I say, this is nothing. Well, we're going to, um, can we put up the first slide, please? Thank you. We're going to um, launch into our, our new um, series here, which I introduced last week. Those of you who were here last week or have listened online, always to be recommended if you missed it. Um, it, it, it we were introducing this theme, Farewell My Friends, the words of Jesus to his disciples in John's Gospel, chapters 13 through to 17. And so last week, we just began to look at Jesus himself. What a wonderful study that is, to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Knowing Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. That, that Graham Kendrick song from of old. And we looked at John chapter 1, where Jesus is described as the Word at the beginning. He's described as the true light that brings light to everyone in the world. He's described as the giver of life, and he's described as the perfect revealer of God, the one who has made known God to us. Otherwise, we would not have the foggiest idea what God was really, really like at all. But Jesus has made him known. 
The Apostle Paul, reflecting on that sort of thing in the letter to the Colossians, describes him as this, the visible image of the invisible God. Now, meditate on that, that Jesus is the visible image or icon of the invisible God. No one, John in chapter 1 says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the Word, has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, you must only look at Jesus himself. Hallelujah. And you know what? As we go through over the next few weeks these chapters from 13 to 17, a large chunk of it, namely chapters 14 to 16, are Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit who is to come. And so I was, I was alluding last week to how Jesus changed the mindset of the disciples from mono, staunchly monotheistic Jews who believed only and furiously in, in the fact that there is only one God and yet came to those same men and women, but his 12 disciples, those same men believing that, came to worship Jesus. Thomas, for example, my Lord and my God, he proclaimed to Jesus after his resurrection. You see how Jesus has succeeded in changing their mindset to actually accommodate the fact that God, who there is only one God, but nevertheless, God, the Father, is now also here with us as God the Son, and God the Son is now telling us about God the Holy Spirit, who is yet to come, and he says, you know him because he is with you, but he will be in you. Whoa, so he's preparing them, preparing them by his words, and later in John's Gospel, he actually prepares them by a, a prophetic act of breathing upon them. He sa he it says in chapter 20, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet we read that it wasn't until Acts chapter 1 and 2 where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So there's, there's something of this preparation. Farewell, my friends. I am leaving you, as it were, me in person but I am not leaving you because the Holy Spirit, my spirit will come and dwell in you. And dear ones, we are the same disciples of Jesus if we're followers of him today in whom the Holy Spirit comes to live. Amen? No different. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, black and white, educated, uneducated, all flesh. I will pour out my spirit. Those last days started on the day of Pentecost and they're still happening today. God pouring out his spirit. If we ask him to, if you're hungry for God, you want to know Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus known to you and me deeply and personally in the same way that the Son made the Father known, so the Spirit makes the Son known. In that wonderful, triune, intimate, totally unified relationship that is God. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then Jesus talks to his disciples and says, if you remain in me and I remain in you. It all gets like, I can't get my head around this language. But it speaks of an intimate, totally one 
united relationship that is eternal and perfect, and God is preparing us for eternity for that reason. And he prepared his disciples in person because he was going to leave them in person, but not leave them as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will come to you. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you found this? Just think about how true this is in your own experience. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that causes a growing love in us for Jesus. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, your love for Jesus, it may fluctuate, but it will grow. Because that is what the Holy Spirit engenders within us. Who's discovered that? That you want to love and you do love Jesus more than you did before. A growing love for Jesus, a desire to know him, and an absolute desperate plea in prayer that we should become like Jesus as well. Because it is the work of the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is in fact the character of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, etc. The character of Jesus. Hallelujah. And so we're going to read now, next slide please, we're going to read the first 17 verses of chapter 13, and let's just pray and ask God to speak to us from his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the word, and therefore we thank you that your words are also powerful, living, and active like you are. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So, Lord, we thank you for you, Jesus, as the Word, and we thank you for your words. And we thank you that, Holy Spirit, you take the words that were breathed out, and now you breathe them into us. So breathe life into each one of us today, we pray, in the name of Jesus, as we read your precious Holy Word. Amen. Let's read. Before the Passover celebration... Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. 
For Jesus knew who would betray him. This, that is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Amen. Could someone get me some water, please? Thank you. Jesus, we're told here, in verse 1, if we go back to the beginning, that's, that's where we are there. It says in the first three verses that Jesus knew three things. Jesus knew, first of all, in, in verse 1, he knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. Jesus knew this. In verse 3, let's just look at all three a moment before we comment. Verse 3, we read this. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. And also he knew that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus was absolutely confident and sure in this knowledge of his identity. He knew his origin. He knew his destiny. He knew his authority. Bless you. It says in Scripture that if you give a cup of water to a teacher, you get a teacher's reward. Have a teacher's reward. I don't know what that is, mind you, but um, you've got it. Jesus knew his identity. His genesis. He'd come from God and was returning to God. Now, <laughs> was that a, a, a growing awareness through his life? Or was it there as a child that he knew? Well, we only know what we're told in Scripture. And that is at the age of 12, when he went to the temple in Jerusalem and then got separated from Joseph and Mary on the return journey. And he was still back in the temple and they'd gone ahead. And where is he, our son, our 12-year-old? Um, and uh, they finally found him and said, well, why did you do this? Why did you, don't you know, you, we were worried about you. And he said, didn't you realize that I would be in my father's house? So at least there's a hint there, a growing, if not a total, awareness of his own identity. I was in my father's house. He knew he had come from God and was returning to God. Now I say this because I believe it is absolutely crucial that we too need to know our identity in Christ. We need to know our own identity in Christ. The reason we have scriptures written to us, we're told more than once, is so that you may know, so that you may believe, so that you might be assured, so that you might be certain. 
so that you might not have to guess, so that you might not have to wake up every morning, scratch your head and think, am I actually a Christian? Do I belong to God? Ha have I experienced salvation? Is my, is my future and eternity secure? Is it or isn't it? Do I know it or don't I know it? The Holy Spirit comes to witness with our spirit that we would cry out, Abba, Father, I belong to you. I can know and be certain, not in any arrogant or presumptuous way, but in a truthful, deep, powerful security. We sang today, thank you, Amy. Wasn't that a wonderful time of worship uh, that Amy and the others led? Brilliant. But we sang as one of those songs, Forgiven, I am set free. Oh, the power of Christ in me. I forget the words exactly, but it's basically that, wasn't it? That was pretty good. Okay, thank you. Mikey says it's good. It's good. <laughs> but that, that's it. You know, we sing these things, forgiven, yeah. On the, in the moment, we're caught up with that. What about tomorrow morning? What about when you're in the middle of the week? What about when you're struggling with a, an issue or, or, or a challenge in your life? Do, do we know our identity? That I am a child of God. Remember last week we read in John chapter 1, but to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. If you have come to Jesus in humility, honesty, and putting your trust in him, he gives you, he gives everyone the right to be a child of God, an adopted child of God. Now, for you to stand up then and say, I am a child of God, is not arrogant. But for you not to stand up and say, I am a child of God, is a denial of the truth. It's actually throwing it back in God's face and saying, no, you haven't done what you have done. So we can be sure, we can be confident, we can be secure. And for that reason, we can then be as secure as Jesus was in being able to do what? Oh, there you are, Amy. <laughs> I didn't know where you'd gone. Uh, uh, we can do what? We can do what Jesus did. We can stand up and even though it says he knew that the Father had given him authority over all things, what did that lead him to do? Take a towel and wash their feet. Not take an army and lead an empire. Not take a business and make a fortune. Not take a political position and have influence. But because he was secure in his identity, he took a towel and washed their feet. We cannot serve like Jesus wants us to, an example that he's left us to follow. We cannot serve unless we're secure in our identity first. Because otherwise we'll be serving out of striving to meet some condition of acceptance or out of fear of rejection or we won't even serve at all because we're so self-conscious or insecure. We need to know our identity. You see, Jesus' doing, if you like, his actions came out of his being. His doing came out of his being. 
His being was, I, I, I know my identity. I know I've come from the Father and I'm returning to the Father. I know who I am. That's my relationship. That's unshakable. Therefore, I can be active. I can do. And our doing as well needs to come out of our being. And that's regardless of the type of personality or character we are. You know, if you took two ends of the spectrum, you might have activists at one end and contemplatives at the other. Somewhere in between, we'll all fit, you know. We're not just totally one or the other necessarily, but those are the two extremes, activists and contemplatives. Well, if you're an activist, God wants you to become a contemplative activist. This is tricky to say. And if you're a contemplative, God wants you to become an active contemplative. So it's not a question of saying, oh, that's how I am. It's not a question of either monastery or mission. It's both. It is our deep relationship with God in the secret, personal, dark places of our lives, day in, day out, night in, night out, walking with, walking with Jesus, knowing him, wrestling with our, 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 our foibles and failures, confessing our sin, reaching to God, passionately calling out to him. Out of our being then, what is it, God, you would call me to do? But the doing is not in order to gain the acceptance. The doing is the fruit of being accepted. Amen? So Jesus took a time. You can't give what you haven't received. You cannot give out what you have not received yourself. So it's not a question. Sometimes people say, oh, I, sh I can't pray for myself. That sounds so selfish. You know, when there's all these needs in the world, it's not an either or. The praying for yourself is not so you just get blessed, blessed, blessed. It's so that we are secure in our relationship receiving power and resources that are not our own. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said, in order that we might be a blessing to the world, that we might fulfill our mission, whatever that mission is in particular. So firstly, Jesus knew his identity. Secondly, Jesus served, as I've just been unpacking. Jesus, by washing the disciples' feet, was so familiar with that story that it's probably not as shocking to us as it should be. Because you can see from Peter's reaction how shocked he was. Where, where it says in the English, you will never ever wash my feet, the Greek phrase is equivalent to, not in a million years, Jesus, it is. It's that, that sort of, you'll never do this to me. Because it was the position of the lowliest slave in the household to wash someone's feet. You can picture very easily um, the, the, the daily um, scenario of people wandering around all the time in there without socks on. <laughs> with sandals on a dusty uh, environment. And so you come into a household and your feet would be the dirty part of you. And so the slave, the lowliest slave, would have the job of washing everyone's feet who came in. Jesus deliberately took that role. 
and showed himself to be the slave, the servant of all. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter 2, it says about Jesus being God, he emptied himself, humbled himself, and took the form of a servant. We're so familiar with that, many of us, that we don't realize how radically strange and different that was in the context of the pagan world or the Jewish world of his time, or even today. <laughs> it was the total opposite of every other king, ruler, leader of any sort. Humility was seen as weakness, and it was despised. That is why Paul, in his letters, often talks about the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and to Greeks, because guess what the cross shows? It shows the uttermost weakness and defeat even. Now, just to show the sort of um, attitude of the day, I've got a, a picture up, if you put it up, please, of a piece of graffiti found in, in Rome. Um, and there's no exact um, clarity about the, the date from which this comes, but it's somewhere between 100 and 200 AD. And you can see there a man on the left with his hand up, probably in an attitude of worship, before a crucifixion of a person with a donkey's head. And the inscription underneath says, Alexamenos worships his God. It's an absolute mockery of Christians at the time. How could you be so stupid as to worship a crucified donkey, someone who's absolutely despised, defeated. This week, how can you do this? But they did. You see, this was beginning to change the world, but it didn't change overnight. And it didn't change everyone's world. And so those who accepted Jesus and made him Lord, you know, you think of our, our songs, All Hail King Jesus. Well, they, were sing they had to say, all hail Caesar. And so to be a Christian was to change allegiance, all hail Jesus. But when they did that, those who mocked saw it as weakness, saw it as something to be despised, something to be laughed at, something to be shown on a piece of graffiti on a wall in a house in Rome. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he came in from the Mount of Olives, down the valley, and up into the city. And if you look at the plan of the city of Jerusalem at that time, as you go into the gates then, into Jerusalem, if you turn right, you get immediately to the Antonia Fortress, the garrison stronghold of the Roman occupiers. If you turned right, you'd go that way. And if you turn left, you go to the temple. 
Jesus came in riding on a donkey, a sign of humility and weakness. Jesus came in riding on a donkey, and he turned left to the temple. Jesus did not come in to take power. He did not come in to lead a revolution in that sense. He came in to cleanse the house of God, the temple of God, the place where the worship of God was expressed. If he'd wanted to set up his kingdom on the earth in some military or political way, he would have turned right and led, and, and led a revolt against the Romans. But he never did. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And every element in history after that where Christians have taken up weapons in the name of Jesus is an absolute blasphemy. Because it does not follow the Prince of Peace. It does not follow the example of Jesus. It is just an, uh, uh, an imitation of the world's idea of authority and power and it is to be despised. And it is to be rejected. We follow the way of Jesus. Now, if you look carefully at Jesus, you'll recognize this. You may be surprised at the origin of the quote I'm going to put on the, uh, on the screen now. If you put it up, please, look at the bottom. Not a well-known Christian, Napoleon Bonaparte. A tyrant, a military leader responsible for probably more deaths than even Hitler or Stalin. But Napoleon Bonaparte said this, or wrote this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible for term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything that can approach the gospel. Whew. Powerful. True. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, belongs to the weak, to the despised. It does not belong to the powerful, the rich, and the influential. I brought two Bibles along today. Uh, uh, the reason I brought this second Bible is because a few years ago, uh, when um, I think Billy, you and I, we, we took a team to New York, do you remember? Um, and um, we, were, we were there in New York and joining in with a, a, a Christian outreach that uh, fed the homeless on, on, on the streets of, of New York. Um, and then once a week on a Wednesday afternoon, they had church on the street, as well as the, the, the food run more regularly than that. So, so we were then set up to, to take church on the street. Now, by church on the street, we mean this. 
We mean church on the pavement or sidewalk. Um, church on the pavement in a busy street. So you had to keep the pavement clear or the police would, would uh, be onto you for obstructing the, the pavement. But you also had to fight the noise of the traffic and everything else going around. And so the, pave, the, the church was like a, a pavement a hundred yards long or so, full of people sitting down there or standing. So it was like, uh, how do I speak to these? How do you, have, how do you hold church on the street? Uh, and we had a team of young people, and I knew that some of them didn't have the voice. We had no amplification. Didn't have the voice to, to be heard by everyone. So we actually, I, 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 what I decided to do was, I had three of them give their testimony at the same time. One down there, one here, and one over there. And so they at least heard something. All of them heard something from someone. Um, and then I got up to, to speak, um, and... Um, and shouted, you know, as best I could. Um, but I, I, it was raining that day a little bit. So it was, it was cold, it was miserable, it was wet. And you know, you know, a, a paper in a Bible is very thin, isn't it? You know that Bible paper, this, this Bible is particularly thin. And I can still feel to this day the bumpiness of this page from the rain on a Wednesday afternoon in wet downtown New York. And when I thought, what on earth do I say to these men and women? I thought, I'll read this, Lord. So I read out. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And you couldn't hear a pin drop. Because it, the word of God just resonated with these people. They knew they were weak, despised, foolish, the nobodies. And God was saying to them, you're mine. You belong to me. This is the kingdom. The kingdom is not, about, is not about washing feet in order to get a position of elevation later. It's not about starting on the bottom rung of the ladder in order to work up that ladder to promotion to something wonderful and influential. The kingdom of God is about following the example of Jesus to serve and serve and serve and serve. And Jesus says, if you want to know what it's like to be great in the kingdom of God, greatness is serving. End of. Not serving with a view to getting out of serving. I do wish that the word ministry had not been so easily corrupted. What do I mean by that? In Scripture, in the New Testament, 
There are not two words, one for ministry and the other for service. There's one word only that's translated as either word. The word is diaconia, from which we get deacons, those who serve. Diaconia is translated service or ministry. But the trouble with our words sometimes in, in our minds is the connotation of ministry has much more to do with status than it has to do with service. And I hate that. I hate that. I hate the, the titles uh, and, and the boasting uh, and the websites uh, and the, the money and the power and the, the big names. It does not reflect Jesus. Ministry is service, not status. It's about reflecting his qualities that he talks about for his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, those who mourn their sin, those who are humble, those who hunger for justice and righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for doing right. Jesus loved his disciples, and he loved them to the very end, we are told here in John 13. His love for them was costly, sacrificial, inconvenient, tiring, humbling, quiet, consistent. That's our example. That's our example. At the very end, Jesus said, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. That's our responsibility. And so, how do we follow his example? I've not got a bowl of water here this morning. We're not going to wash each other's feet. I mean, people do that sometimes, but that's not the be-all and end-all. That's a way of serving. It's asking God, what is the way you want me to serve? You see, don't ask God this silly question, what is my ministry? Don't ask God that. Ask God, God, what way can I serve you by serving other people? And whatever's in front of you, get on and do it. There's washing up to be done. We've heard that. There's all sorts to be done. There's stuff together and there's stuff on your own. But there's loads to be done. We are the hands and body of Christ on the earth. So the only way the earth and the people in the earth will know how the head, Jesus, feels about them is if they experience it and hear it through the body, through us. Ask, how do we create a new community? This is new community, church. In Acts chapter 2, we read of uh, the sermon from Peter on the day of Pentecost uh, about uh, repenting and being baptized and putting faith in Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. And we read on and it says, and he preached for a lot longer than that, telling them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. How do they do that? How do you s the way that's translated by um, Eugene Peterson in the message is quite nice. He says, get out of this sick and stupid culture. But how do you get out of the sick and stupid culture that you live in? 
We do live in a sick and stupid culture, I do believe. Not everything is sick and stupid, but a lot of it is. The values, etc. How do we get out of that? Well, read on to the end of chapter 2 of Acts, and it says, And they devoted themselves. Having come to Christ, having come into this new community, they built a new community culture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to breaking bread together in the context of meals with one another, and to fellowship. And if anyone was in need, they sold things and, and gave to one another as each person had needs. They created a new culture which got despised as weakness, like worshipping a donkey on a cross. But it changed the world. There is no more Roman Empire, but there is the church of the living God following the example of Jesus to this day. Last slide, please. And so we've, uh, we've looked at these three things. Jesus knew his identity. Do we know ours? If you don't, then you take that to God now in response. Jesus served out of security, out of knowing who we are in Christ. We too are called to serve. So Lord, how, where, what? But it's got to come out of our being. Because if we just do it out of striving and uh, a, a, a sort of a fleshly, oh, I must do this, we will get exhausted and burnt out. The doing has got to come out of our being, knowing our identity, serving out of security. Jesus gave us an example to follow that we never, ever reflect the world's idea of power, force, influence, compulsion, coercion. Instead, we follow our Savior. And God will bless you for doing that, says the Lord. Because he did. He said that, says the Lord. So let's take a moment. Have we got time for the song? I think it'd be good. But you may want to call the... Yes. Flora's got a message for parents. Um, absolutely. That was really, really important. Um, I, I just think that it's absolutely fine for the children to be in, in the response as well. So if, if you really feel like you need to respond, then nudge your friend or go and grab your, your children. But we would love to lead into a response now, which the worship team will do. And if you could pray for us, I, Phil. I definitely, definitely. As the worship team up, though, uh, come up uh, now. Thank you. Um, can we just respond? Um, obviously, par parents... Please do, 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 do what you need to do. Um, bl blame me for going on too long, that sort of thing. Um, I do normally. <laughs> but can we, let's just take a, a quiet moment to respond on any of these. Before we put a song up, can we just respond quietly? Just, just you, between you and God now, yourself. Maybe there's something today from Scripture. Maybe there's something even from what I might have said that has touched your heart 
and you, and you feel, Lord, I, I need to talk to you about that. I need to get that right. I need to change. I need your help. Whatever it is, tell God. Prayer is just that. Say it to God. Say it to God. Your Father, the one who loves you, the one who gives you the right to become a child of God. Talk to him now, just in a moment of quiet. And... For those who are still pondering, one of the sessions on Lectio 365 this week, some of you listen to that regularly, I listen to it occasionally, and the one I listened to quoted an old hymn, a simple little verse of an old hymn, which is such a powerful prayer in its simplicity, and it goes like this, breathe on me breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love the way you love and do the things you do. Lord Jesus, we do really want to follow your example. We realize, Lord, that we run out of grace and and energy and time and inclination so easily. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you you don't reject us. You encourage us to come on, to come into you, to discover in you the source of strength, that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. Lord, make your strength perfect in our weakness and lead us personally and corporately into Christ-like service that really meets needs and reflects your goodness and love because we want to see you glorified and we want to see people touched. Lord, we want to, be, we want to see people so convinced of your goodness and difference like Napoleon was, but, 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 but it didn't make a difference to Napoleon's life as far as we know. And we pray that people will be convinced of who you are, Lord Jesus, and turn and put their faith in you and be changed and be saved. Thank you, Lord. Amen.